Jim and Lindsay are dangerously eclectic. From the chilly banks of Lake Michigan, coming at you from the plains of Texas. At least I think he's in the plains. He's somewhere. Yeah, it's central Texas, and it's basically like maybe it gets down to 40 here at night. <laughs> I think it's like 18 out there right now, so it's not exactly super chilly for here. But anyway, it is... Ben and L coming at you for another episode of Dangerously Eclectic. How are you doing tonight, my brother? Not too bad at all. Uh, good mental health week. Good work week. Uh, only work Monday and Tuesday and next week. Then I'm off till January the 6th. Things are looking good. That is pretty awesome. Um, it's a good week for me, too, because, I'm, well, I'm out of coursework and, and have been for the semester. But I got all my grading for my students done earlier this Ooh. week. So when we had our grading meeting today, I was just like, I'm done. So why am I here? Um, but it was still cool. Got to listen to some student podcasts and discuss grading philosophies. Always good. But that's not what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to lean into one of L's areas of expertise. Would you like to give your credentials, sir? Why not? Um, I did my two-year associate degree at Pellissippi Community and Technical College in Knoxville, Tennessee. I did that in general English. Uh, more emphasis on creative writing and, you know, the survey courses you get at the 200 level, screenwriting, poetry, fiction, truth. So what have you? Uh, I did my four year degree at the University of Tennessee. I should have said degrees. One of them was in psychology because I knew I wanted to teach. And as someone with mental health issues, I was, as I suspect at least 80% of the people who major in psychology are, trying to figure my own ass out. Uh, however, on the English side, I did creative writing for my four-year degree. I did lit for my master's. Um, none of that's probably going to be relevant to my, I suspect at this point, EDD, not PhD, but I have read as an obsession. I, I, let me put it this way. And I know this is a book Ben has to discuss. I've read like Renfield eight flies since I was maybe five years old. So, yeah, this one's going to be led more by me, but we're going to make plenty of time for Ben, who has thoughts and social repercussions and historical context on these texts, if nothing else. Um, he, he's a heavy reader, don't get me wrong. He just wasn't that into the kind of stuff you read before you start reading academically, aside from, I will say, Ben, fantasy novels. Sure. Yeah, I read a lot of fantasy novels and um, and and a few classics spread throughout there, including pulp fiction and things of that nature. I just never really got into the literary canon. But since you brought it up, let's go ahead and start with fantasy novels. And I kind of touched on this a little bit in our last episode. But for me, the my attraction to fantasy novels, a lot of it does come through Tolkien. But they're not my favorites. They are. Um, mine absolutely began with The Hobbit. And I will tell you this in the interest of fairness, and we'll go back to them not being your favorites, so you'll mm -hmm. understand how much that hurts me. Uh, <laughs> I have read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings 
up until about four years ago, I religiously read them at at least once a year since about the age of 12. Oh, goodness. Um, I've read The Hobbit multiple times and Lord of the Rings multiple times, which is something that I don't do, so that speaks to their quality. There's only one book that I generally read regularly, and that's Dracula, which I read about once a year, and we'll come back to that. Um, but no, Tolkien is great. He's foundational, but that was not the first of the genre that I read. So it's not my favorite. Really? Right. Yeah. It was Dragonlance. I got into those when I was about eight because I had a cousin who played D and D and he introduced me to them. And that was, I liked, which when we get to the gaming, we'll talk more about that. But that was something since my parents didn't want me to have the role-playing books, again, as we alluded to in an earlier episode, I could have the Dragonlance novels. Sure. And uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. know what they were. Sure, right. I mean, it's like, okay, cool. Um, you know, and... To me, those are much more complex or a, a higher level of story than what Salvatore does. Um, to put it yes, into a yes, but I a, love Salvatore and I have darn near everything he's ever written. That's a bunch because that dude writes a lot. Well, but let me put it this way: I also love Louis Lamour's mm-hmm. short stories. Yes, they're formulaic, but if you do a form well, why change? No, no, Lamour is a great Western author, even though he doesn't write my favorite Westerns either. He's probably the best Western author, but not my favorite. And Uh, I would actually submit to you the best American short story author other than perhaps O. Henry. Sure. That's all I submit to you. Please keep talking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I wasn't sure if you were done or not. Um, Oh, I'm done. No, you're not. You're just done for now. Uh, Let me see. Uh, I was talking. Okay, yeah. But no, just the depth of character. And like, I remember crying in the first Dragonlance novel, Dragons of Autumn Twilight, I think it is, uh, when one of the characters almost dies. He like gets breathed on by a black dragon, which has acid breath, and it almost kills him. And, you know, I, my little eight-year-old boy self was just sobbing at that because I really like that character and if fiction has any strength it's that ability to connect emotionally and I can't praise it higher than that that connected with me at an emotional level the way that no other fantasy work has I will add to that as far as an emotional connection that the point in the two towers in the movie version mind you When Faramir betrays Frodo, Mm -hmm. I I still haven't seen the third movie. I will never see the third movie. (laughs) Because Faramir's adherence to Gondor's code in the face and despite of the king, well, sorry, steward, um, that meant a world to me. And then when in the third book you get to the romance between Theramir and Eowyn, I, I, I mean, my heart melts, my, my, my nerves are sensitized just talking about it. But the fact 
that they in any way modified that, I was done with the movies. I still am. I mean, the part of the reason that I'm not a huge Tolkien fanboy is I read The Cimmerillion, and that killed it for me. Yeah, Book of Lost Tales is better, and there's some other stuff I'll recommend if anybody wants to hit me up on Twitter, at EclecticHeretic. Um, there's a lot that's better than The Cimmerillion. Yeah, it's dude, it's like reading the Old Testament. Reading, no, exactly. It's it, and, and it's not even Genesis or Exodus. It's like Deuteronomy. It's like the Book of the Law. Uh, it's, he who breaks the law goes back to the house of pain. <laughs> the Island of Dr. Moreau, by the way, H.G. Wells, totally in my uh, my commentary for the evening. But, you know, it, it really is the worst <laughs> of Tolkien's books. And, and, you know, I don't recommend it unless you're like Stephen Colbert level obsessive with The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. I will defend it in this, even though I just said that it kind of, well, I said killed, but I should say dampened my fandom of his work. It is an excellent source book in someone who is an obsessive world builder. Right. And remember, Tolkien was a linguist. Yeah. He was actually more concerned with writing these as a foundation or excuse to build multiple languages and see what and demonstrate what he thought were influences or history upon language. The fact that he managed to toss off such amazing fiction in between his quatrains and whatever else you have in Elvish and Orcish and the rest of the languages is mind-boggling. Yeah, and you really need to, since you feel that way about it, you need to come back up and visit because Marquette University's library collection contains the Tolkien works. So oh it's got a bunch yes. of his oh, personal yes. writings and Sometimes drafts. Next two years. Yeah. So Does it have letters that. to Christopher as well? To his son? Because his son, a very few of you that are listening might know, went on to continue and and actually fill out and complete a few of the things that were left unfinished upon J.R.R.'s death. I kind of imagine that if they stuck with us this far, they might know that, um, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but I, I don't know. And this is going to, to offend you. I've never gone and looked at them. I know they're here. I think it's cool that we have them, but I've just been like, whatever. As I've said before, as a parent, it doesn't offend or hurt me. I'm just disappointed <laughs> with you. I don't even know why you're disappointed in that. I'm not really. I know that's the niche of, you, of the dilettante intellectual that I am. But Nerd part of well, you know, part of me does resent the fact, not you, but that society in large, in general, does tend to discount these influences. And other than Catch-22, I would argue that there is no more influential book in the World War, the World War II era. Uh, 
say that. Not popularly. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. That's a skip from a historian, so that's fine. I'll take it. Well, and it's just, I am a historian, but I'm not a historian of popular culture. So saying what other fiction works are more influential is really outside of my purview. So I'm just not going to venture there. There were more that were canonically more influential. But regarding popular culture, and somebody would have to look up a, uh, look up the date on this for me, when feminist writing, especially the feminist mystique, really became a big deal. But I'm fairly positive it was after World War II. And the Kilroy was here cartoons... The Frodo Lives graffiti in the London Underground, they're really Catch-22 in the Lord of the Rings, man. That that was about, now at least for counterculture, that was about the biggest thing going. I think it depends on where you're at with that, man. Uh, just for the record, Feminine Mystique was released in 63, so it wouldn't really have been gaining salience until the mid-60s. No. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can think, you know, um, Camus, I would say Camus is more important than anything Tolkien wrote, but that's just because I care more about post-colonial theory and post-colonial writing than I do what Tolkien was doing. (laughs) Right. I, I will, I will step aside to argue as a justification for the rest of the episode. However, that fantasy sci-fi and fiction in general reflect more than almost anything else and and go ahead and add in cinema because that's fiction it's a different format but you can go read the screenplays what have you that reflects the common angst or common subconscious of a of a culture maybe more than anything else Yes, I would say that fiction can do stuff that history or any nonfiction can't do, because it can. It can play with the tropes. It can act as a genre shorthand. It can really touch people where they live. But here's where... Please go back to but here's where. Hold your thought. But in my opinion, that's still viewing it retroactively. Modern fiction, particularly that that becomes successful, has a place in the current psyche of the era in which it was written, which makes it either contemporaneous or predictive and not simply something to be read as a historical artifact. Uh, I see it more as a mirror of what's going on, which is not really discounting what you're saying, but into psychology, please go look up Lacan, L A C A N. If you're not familiar with his imagistic mirror theory, right. Uh, Get a Lacan. So here's what I was going to say. And this is actually a quote from Chuck Cloisterman that I heard on the Bill Simmons podcast just earlier this week. Love Bill Simmons. Um, And he was talking about, uh, marriage Story, I think. Uh, a new movie that's out that I won't watch. <laughs> and, and he said, 
he was talking about the movie and said that, you know, his problem with naming it that was if you name something the marriage story, then it has to say something about all marriages. And he felt that it failed in that endeavor. And the reason that he felt that it failed in that endeavor was the problem between the couple felt too precise. And it didn't really feel like a, a real couple having trouble. And this there is what he said. Very, no, please go ahead and then I'll chime in. And here's a tweet that I put out on my Twitter at Ben Dangerously. Chuck Klosterman just explained my problem with fiction. In a fictional story, you need a story, and a story needs clarity. That's the end of the quote. And why that resonates with me is because since I am a historian, since I do deal with people's lives, they're very messy. They're not as neat as even, I mean, Tolkien wrote incredibly intricate and complicated fiction. I, I cannot argue that. Um, perhaps the only people who wrote more complicated and messy fiction are some of the classic Russian novelists. Um, Turgenev, uh, especially fathers and sons would be one I would recommend reading Dostoevsky, obviously also, and God forgive me for not remembering who wrote it, but the French author of if at winter's night, a traveler, which is beautifully meta meta. And that's all I'll say on that. Go ahead. Sorry. So to me, and the reason that that I bring that up is because the power of fiction for me, and maybe not for L, the power of fiction for me is that it distills the human existence down into something that transcends a person and allows massive groups of people to tap into it. How Where I find that unsatisfying is that if you're going to say that it then speaks to the moment, I believe it does in a way, but the the moment is so much messier, more complex than most fiction can relate to it, that it is still just a distillation. Well, and my argument, my counter-argument to that would be, uh, I suppose to go all the way back and, and, and quote Herodotus, call no man happy until he is dead, which means that until you have seen the complete shape of the story, you have no way of judging the life. Which but that's means assuming that, that the story actually has a shape, which I reject. I don't think our lives have an overarching true story and shape to them. Within a certain frozen moment and its precedence, I would argue that they do. My best example of that probably at least in modern writing would be either John Fowles, the collector, which yes, I know it inspired a bunch of serial killers, but they must not have read or empathized or understood the second half of it. Or if you want to go back to Shakespeare, Hamlet, Hamlet is concerned with the actions of a prince who realizes that his father has been murdered by his current stepfather. It concerns no moment before that other than in passing and no moment after because he dies. Well, hell, every, damn near everybody dies except Fortinbras. But my point being that the weakness and yet the strength of fiction is that the story does, in fact, end. 
It allows you to see the shape of a life and to place yourself empathetically at some point within that life, which may at the time or as you are younger or as you age, clarify to you where you yourself are at at that point in time. The constructed meaning that you give your life. Yes, I completely agree with that. Foucault wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly Dorito might have edged in that direction, but probably not. Uh, but anyway, back to fantasy. Oh, my, my. Oh, hell yes. And it sounds like you're waiting for me to say something. So we'll come back to d and I'm fairly certain. One of the gigantic fantasy, sci-fi, and I consider horror, and as well as sci-fi, a subgenre of fantasy. One of the giants. Rock and roll fantasy. With apologies to Rick Derringer, no, I don't think so. That was Rick Derringer, wasn't it? Ha ha! If whether I'm right or wrong, you're gonna have to check. And if I'm right, bonus points for me. In any case, one of the gigantic authors in that field for me. Bad company. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay, I feel bad. Um, But you're in good company, so don't worry about it. Yeah, until the day I die. But the point being that Stephen King, maybe more than any other author, expanded my horizons. And to be honest, maybe the best page-turning author since, as I mentioned before, Louis L'Amour, or I would add Raymond Chandler. Um, Possibly Ursula K. again, since we're still sticking with fantasy. Stephen King can make, and he's been accused of having, quote, diarrhea of the typewriter, unquote. But he can make you turn a page as well or better than anybody in the business. And when you're going that fast, some of his implications, some of his ideas, some of his philosophies as they appear in the books, gloss over you and influence you in ways you you aren't aware of. Because you're not stopping to consider them. You're taking them whole in the context of the narrative. The only thing that Stephen King ever inspired me to do was to close this book and set it down. Ouch. Ouch. But I mean, fair enough. I, you know, self introverted misfit, it felt like truth. Now, albeit the truth you fear, the deep down truth you suspect may lie under underneath everything, but hope to God doesn't. But it still felt like truth. I, I'm not going to discount that because I mean, a that's your experience, and I didn't have the same experience. It's just to your point about him di- having diarrhea of the typewriter. I think that he at times has a very 
good turn of phrase. He has an, a magnificent eye for detail. The problem is that he decides to spill all that detail onto the page. And it's just has always been too much. I mean, this is kind of odd considering that I'm just it's the argument that I have against fiction. But there's just too much for it to wade through. And I just never connected with any of his characters. I mean, I think some of his short stories are good. I liked Salem's Lot. Um, That's a novella, to be fair. Okay. Wit nerd, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, and The Stand is not a short story by any stretch of the imagination. Parts of that oh, were okay. But the unabridged edition... And I'm I'm going to interrupt you just for this. If what you really want is to know a character and view and feel the world from their perspective, the stand is amazing. It's probably my favorite one of his works, but I don't consider it amazing. Yeah, well, you know, I we're mean, talking it, it, before I was 25 here. Fair. I mean, it's, <laughs> and I, I think that the majority of our listeners, and uh, and I know the majority of our friends, would side with you on that, and not me. I just, it is something that I have never understood the the appeal. And that's fair. I think to some extent, and please correct me if you feel I'm wrong. But to some extent, the fact that you grew up in even in an even smaller community than I did mm-hmm. uh, made it more difficult to see yourself. All of his protagonists, all of them, are outcasts. All of them have at some point turned away from the societally prescribed way of of acting, of behaving, of believing, of thinking. And I'm not saying that you didn't do that, Ben. I'm just saying that your experience being as small town as it was, everyone might have felt more that way deep inside than some of us. And it sounds like bullshit, even as I'm saying it. So go ahead. Well, no, my rejoinder to that would be, and this is, has its own problematics, but the author who got my small town experience closer than the king was Lovecraft, because coming from such a small community, such a small insular community, it was much more xenophobic. And that's the idea that it truly is the individual against the outside world. Right. It's not the idea that the individual can find a, something, some information, some occult, some occluded idea, something outside themselves. It's truly that it's all within themselves and their own experience. And I can see why that would make Lovecraft Dracula while which it's nested is primarily told in the first person perspective, I can see why that would make them much more powerful to you. Well, and let me add a little bit of information and I've kind of, and I may have said this on past podcasts. I don't know. I'm an only child. I didn't grow up uh, for a brief time. When I was first started school, we lived in a little 
um, fuck, I can't even think, suburb that had other compound. kids in and around my, not, it wasn't a compound, <laughs> not a compound, um, where there were other kids my age, but for the majority of my life, I lived at least three or four miles from a civilization center. I was the only person my age. The only time I was around kids my age was when I was in school. Now, the summers, I would sometimes go spend with my grandparents. I'd be around my cousins. But once again, that's family. And, and it's let's very be insular. clear that when you said, what was it, population centers? Is, is that the phrasing you used? Yeah. Yeah, we're still talking about less than a thousand people. Right. No, it totally. just that there weren't like five every 30 acres right um <laughs> the for the the majority of the time growing up on the piece of land that we that my family owned my grandparents got it in the 1950s and like i've lived all over the country but most of that was when i was very young except for a year i spent in tennessee unfortunately in pulaski the home of the Ku Klux clan um <laughs> yeah exactly um anyway the two neighbors on either side, one side was a great uncle. On the other side was an elderly couple. So, again, no kids. So it, it was kind of an isolating experience. So that probably speaks to why, and I hadn't really thought about it until you mentioned it, but that's probably why Dracula has such a resonance, because so much of that is from a first-person isolated experience experience oh and because jonathan harker is absolutely a naive first person narrator now it's wrapped within that envelope uh, less extensive but similar to frankenstein of the Mm -hmm. nested narrative but it start it's a correspondence at the very most basic level it's not only a singular person's thought it's a singular person's thought who requires time to hear back from the person to whom he sent his thoughts right <laughs> well thank you for your approval well no i was agreeing with you not no, like i approval. understand but there was a there was a distinct pause after that um well that was because i was thinking you know, and the thing that i was thinking was that also so much of it especially in lovecraft's work and we've kind of gone all over the place but we're dangerously eclectic so that's what you get yeah, it, right. so much of his work is and you had mentioned this earlier the protagonist reading and that's what I did. That's why I read so much. It's because I, you know, that was my outlet. Yeah, absolutely. And it actually goes back musically to something we touched on at least briefly in the last episode. Uh, for me, musically, they might be giants. Was gigantic. Um, no pun intended. Well, <laughs> no. No pun intended. But their perspective, their warped, if you would, or more popular than you thought, if you will, perspective really meant something to me. And I think that's what both Ben and I are getting at, whether it was more of a group thought 
thing, more of an individualist thing, which is why I think we both probably like Tolkien more than maybe any of these other artists, with the exception of Ben's, you know, Elminster Chronicles and whatever else he gets into. No, no, no. No, okay. I, I like Tolkien better than I like Salvatore, so I like it better than the Elminster Chronicles. The only other... Uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt this, but the only other fiction or excuse me, fantasy author that I would whose works I would say I enjoy more than Tolkien, other than the Weiss Hickman Dragonlance novels and not Weiss and Hickman's other stuff is David Eddings, Ruby Knight and Diamond Throne and Sapphire Rose. So and just a brief pause to reiterate, if you haven't read Ursula K. Lucky. Clan of the Cave Bear is good, but before that, if you haven't read her Wizard of Earthsea stuff, for the love of God, go do it. And that includes, now we're going to start expanding at random, because that's what we do. I think we kind of already have. Yeah, I know. But that includes (laughs) Roger Zelazny's Amber Chronicles which begin in a film noir slash Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler sort of feel and truly continue on not only in high fantasy, but science fiction. I, seriously, the great book of Amber is like 30 bucks. It gives you all 10 freaking novels in the series for the love of God. Go read them. Go Ben. Uh, no, I'm not going to go read them, but thank you. Um, <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> other people can. Dude, if there's that many books in the series, it better be a damn good series. And I know you just said it was, because I just don't you have... You have no freaking idea. Picture it <laughs> beginning with, um, say, Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler. And by the end of it having transitioned into Lagine, into Heinlein, into one of those freaking far distant vision futures. And he did it in ten novels, each of each of which is complete by itself and yet is part of a larger mosaic. Roger Zelazny is my hero. Please go read his shit. There you go. Go read this shit. I want to touch on one of the other authors you just mentioned in there. Because I think it's very important. And it kind of touches to your the importance of science fiction to society. And that's Heinlein Starship Troopers. Oh, hell yes. Let's bring this on. Because I've got thoughts on both the book and the movie. Go for it, my brother. Well, shit, I didn't expect you to start me off. But there's a real interesting line, ethically, in Starship Troopers particularly, but especially if you go beyond that and read Stranger in a Strange Land. I mean, honestly, those two are probably his most influential, if not best books, that that really does introduce the idea of what are morals and ethics when you encounter a separate culture. To that, I would add Orson Scott Card's Ender's series, particularly the Shadow series uh, featuring Bean, that 
really in-depth, take a philosophical, moral, ethical look at what happens if we actually do encounter another culture, another history, another series of thought, another method of thought, which is, you know, incomprehensible to most of us, but possible. Right. It, it is a, a very... I don't know where to go off of that because you took it in a direction I wasn't expecting. Um, like I usually do. I mean, as such, it can be read as a metaphor for colonialism, and I don't know necessarily that that's what Heinlein was going for. Well, no, it. a stranger in a strange land like RoboCop is obviously a Christ parallel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I don't know that... Starship Troopers itself is a Christ parallel. Although, and I haven't read Stranger in a Strange Land, so I'll take your word for it. Um, Starship Troopers, if, God, one person in our audience has read St. Augustine's Justification for War. Yeah. For an ethical or moral war. Yeah, exactly. If anyone's read that, that's what Starship Troopers is. But it presents metaphysically and ethically a very interesting concept of if it truly comes down to me or you, why shouldn't I choose me and and train everyone and even indoctrinate everyone to believe that? Because it's the survival of our species. It's the survival of our influence on what we believe is morally correct on the universe do we have a right to and whether or not we do should or should we not hmm. sorry brother no, I, good. we told him at the beginning i'm the lip major well i mean i think that it is i would say that it is definitely a metaphor for the cold war oh beyond doubt and that I do think it is, to to your point, to save the survival of our species, meaning our ideology, we must be willing to complete. We must be willing to completely exterminate the enemy. Correct, and there's a reason that no other truly popular ideology featuring that has not represented an other-than-human culture. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I'm done. It's very othering. Um, it's very interesting because, you, and you said you had thoughts about the movie, too. Yep. And I will admit that it's been a long time since I've read the book, but when I read the book, I didn't really get all the... Connections to fascism that are in the the movie, and that doesn't mean they weren't there. Just might mean that I wasn't they exposed to them there, at the time. But it's it's vaguely there. It's there in the sense that there is a knowable scientific basis for ethos and pathos, and that we've solved it, which is so. In- incredibly xenocentric 
that it's hard to read that way, but it is there. Yeah, I, maybe so. I'm not going to doubt that. Like I said, it's been a long time since I read it, but to me it read more like any other military fiction of the time, that it was just, you know, oh, we're, we're dropping bombs on people from our star cruisers in outer space. Now, granted, a lot of the military fiction that I was reading when I read Starship Troopers was much more akin to the Mac Bolin Punisher series, not Punisher, Executioner series, who's, who inspired the Punisher. And that, you know, is a reaction to a delegitimization of the government that a man has to take matters into his own hand and become a vigilante. Yes, I'll concede that. However, I think that the, that for those that are aware of it, there's a deeper point. Because most of that comes from the colonel who is the professor in their high school for the mandatory historical ethics and whatever class. Well, total indoctrination, but I mean school is well, indoctrination. Yes, but he legitimately does have some points to make, at least in my opinion. You're going to hate me, so please, just for the social integration benefit of it, hit me up at adaclaricticheretic.org or dot nothing. It's Twitter. Whatever. I'm old. But the major who is in charge of that social indoctrination preaches that the one Thing that is not true is the dogmatic idea that violence never settled anything. Now, Ben is a historian. I'll be happy to get your point of view. But someone suggests that their mother says that violence never settled anything. And the professor's answer is, let's go ask the Carthaginians. Right. Uh, well, I mean, that is one of those absolute statements that I don't think really you can hold up because I will say that violence has solved a lot of things and some things only can be solved by violence. Close to everything that gets pushed to the limit of I will die rather than deny X. Right. The, the thing that really stuck out to me, and I, and I honestly, like I said, it's been so long since I read the book that I don't remember if this is just in the movie or just in the book. But to be a citizen, you have to serve. You have to have been a part of the military. That's in both. And the reason being, as justified by Heinlein and the movie, that unless you are willing to put your life on the line for the state, you do yeah. not deserve to influence the actions of the state, which has at least potentially, and God forgive me for being Jeffersonian about this, has some value, value and validity. At least in my opinion. Hmm. I, as a concept, I don't necessarily disagree, but I think that there are more ways to, to serve society than 
are mentioned in that particular screed. Absolutely, there are. However, and now I'm going to quote no FX, so you're welcome to take everything I've said for what it's worth. But there's no point to democracy if ignorance is celebrated. And I would say what I said the last time you said that, that there's not hasn't been a point to democracy in a long time. Fair enough. We'll go read to Tocqueville and debate that at some later point. Well, I mean, you know, that gets down to that we get the government that we deserve. Because I am not willing to say that only enlightened men should participate in democracy. If it is going to be true democracy, then the the entire polity needs to be able to participate, even if they make fucking bad decisions. Yes, but to be fair, our government was not set up to be a true democracy. It was set up as a representative democracy. You where know why? Especially prior to, yes, I know why, and I'll let you talk about <laughs> it in just a second. But especially prior to the amendment, which allowed democratically elected senators, was designed particularly to privilege an intelligentsia yes. more than the popular democratic vote. Our, our, our Constitution was drafted as a counter-revolutionary measure to check unrestrained democracy. And yet not allow exclusively for civil states' rights in the sense that states were their own part of the Articles of Confederation. Yes. Actually, you broke up on part of that. Could you repeat it, please? Sure. Uh, that was the predicate assuming that states were realized the right within the Articles of Confederation to be truly independent and that more than that was necessary to avail the intended federalist ambition of a common defense of a common contribution to government. Yeah. That can articles of confederacy are no way to run a government. Uh, if you wanted to have a bunch of little fiefdoms that would have worked. And there was a certain, certainly there was a, a, strand amongst the founding fathers that wanted that so are you hitting woodrow wilson and the, the united nations here um fuck woodrow wilson yeah okay but his wife wouldn't <laughs> uh, woodrow wilson was a racist piece of shit yeah i absolutely so. agree with that but we're going to go to Lovecraft at some point. So Also a racist piece and... of <laughs> But a good author. Just a, yeah. the purplest of prose. Yeah. Uh, and Wilson, I mean, for all his faults, he did get a lot accomplished as a president. It's just I think that he gets a pass on a lot of uh, his peccadilloes, such as purging people of color from... The federal government. Oh, no uh, question. His dem his domestic policies were shit. You know, but the, his, his the progressive. The that he had of a world, at least observation and supervision of government, 
is still with us, however laughably discounted, today. I don't know that it can be laughably discounted. Um, I think that it's something that can never really be fully embraced, and I don't necessarily know that Wilson really meant it to, to reach its logical conclusion. Well, I don't think he had any idea. I mean, self-determination was for white Christian Europeans well, pretty and much exclusively. People, no, and people and minorities who agreed to subjugate themselves to the rules of white Christian Europeans. Well, that's not self-determination. Yeah, let's go ahead. You On to you. Oh, gosh. Well, actually, it should be you, because I was the one who brought up Heinland. Yeah, okay. What I would add on that front is the novels that got me to speculate both in the in physics and in science uh the the probably most influential of which was Madeline Kayla Ingalls uh, a wrinkle in time a wind in the doorway C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, which for those of you who don't understand a Southern Baptist upbringing, it was amazing that those were in my church's library, because in the last volume, they preach existentialism. They preach conclusion or conclusiveness. They say that as long as you were faithful to the deity in which you believed, you're good. It's universalism, and I know of almost no Christian faith today which embraces universalism, yet back then they did, or at least C.S. Lewis did. Hmm. I don't know enough about C.S. Lewis's religion to really know. I know he is often credited as a very Christian author, um, perhaps a bit of a... No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, from the way you're describing, perhaps a bit of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, but I know that... Very limited extent. However, if you'll go read, if this is the kind of thing that you're into, the screw tape letters, yeah. which are from a demon who is trying to get humanity to believe certain things, and yet they have a level of empathy for the fallen angel. And that, to me, emphasizes what C.S. Lewis was about. He did not believe, as so many Christians and Muslims and Jews, and I don't know who the hell. So forget I said those few things, but he did not believe that a single contextual decision rendered you damned. And that's huge. I will say that uh, a lot of people on the theology side really do like his writings and to to debate uh, them from a a theological point as to what do they say about doctrine and everything else. I've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I haven't read the screw tape letters. Um, and I did like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And to me, that, that was one of the things that 
there is just enough symbolism there that if you're looking for it, you can find it. But I didn't I did. feel that it was overt. No, it wasn't. But I and I liked it too, like I said. But let's go ahead and be clear that literally every single person who was not potentially a British boarding school alumnus could not believe how terrible Turkish delight was when they first tasted it. Have you tasted it? I think I have, but it didn't it's taste bitter. so terrible that I remember it. It, it. It's not terrible, but it's barely a freaking candy. The idea that you would betray your own brothers and sisters for a bare taste of it is so so far beyond ludicrous. You you might as well I, throw them bows. No, I don't even have a comparison. Turkish delight is on the the let's say licorice end of of Christmas treats. It's it's not terrible. I'm I not love black licorice, by the way, so I might like it the whole lot. No, it's not a licorice flavor. It's just about as popular as black licorice. Well, that's what I'm saying. I love black licorice. So, well, you know, you may sell us all out for some, for some Turkish, Turkish delight. delight. I mean, most of us I, who have actually tasted ever in our lives real processed sugar will be against you. I've uh, done some shady things for camel cigarettes, and that's Turkish gold. Turkish oh, blend. Gold, baby. Gold! Um, Somewhere and, in their hills. And see, that's a thing that I would find very interesting is because I would love to go, and I don't remember the name, you probably do, of the little pub where Tolkien and Lewis sat and debated things and talked about their novels and did all that. I find that very interesting, the way that they, they came up with well, just like novels. Just like the Algonquin Roundtable, the, the, the idea of these guys or ladies or both or gender-fluid people, who the hell knows, but the idea of all these people sitting down together and coming up with some sort of consensus is amazingly attractive. But I also feel, as I think Judith Butler and some several other scholars would would justify, false. How so? In the sense that the people in the room, by definition, exclude the people who are not in the room. Right. And that it is impossible to consider those people. I mean, we're talking about a decade worth of change. Whereas the people that are going to fund my grant for 1978 don't want to hear about what 1980-something might reveal. Uh, there's, There's an inherent bias to funded research mm-hmm. which dictates that it goes to where the people providing the money wish it to go 
that's unavoidable. I'm not saying because I'd be a fucking messiah if I could. I'm not saying there's any way to change that. I'm simply saying that it needs to be considered in your evaluation of studies from that period. I think we are on different pages on this. Because I just think that it would be interesting to see their thought processes and the way they worked through it. I don't necessarily think that you're that I would be making any conclusions about it. It's just seeing the the mind at work in those instances amongst and those that, people, the way the relationships worked out. No, absolutely. And that may be deep down my longing for a truly scientific and statistically evaluatable concept of a learning framework, which probably in reality does not exist. But if you are a statistics nerd, which I also am, if we could analyze adequately the demographic and otherwise statistical responses from the people that respond to these surveys, information requests, what have you, we could produce a much more realistic idea of the amount of influence that professorial influence has had on students, which could, in theory, improve both our faculty and our usefulness at the end of the program. I'm an idealist. Have I mentioned that before? <laughs> but if I weren't, statistically speaking, I would still think that's true. Well, of course it's true. I mean, we ha have all kinds of evidence that representation matters. Dude, it only has to equal more than 30 to be applicable to a population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was it. Go ahead. I'm just saying, if we can get 35 or 40 motherfuckers to respond, we can at least extrapolate and do what we want to get more money. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Uh I have less power or faith in the power of statistics than you do and also of student responses. I don't think that they are worthless. I think that they are windows into the problem. I just don't know if the that the students' ideas of what the problem are are necessarily what the problem is. No, and to be fair, I have spent my life in either acquiring additional assistance from grants or justifying from a customer service aspect and a questionable aspect the, our program's current expenses to where, yes, I've sold out, if that's what you want to call it. Sell out with me tonight, sell out. A real big fish. Go find them if you don't know. <laughs> but legitimately, the idea of doing somewhat questionable research in the name of getting funding to do much more nailed down and specific research 
does not appall me. Hmm. And if you're uh. totally principled, yes, it will. But I've long since, and I've said it before, moved over to the dark side. And if you guys want your IR and E stuff to get approved, bitch, it's got to make money. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry, but fact is different from ideal. And, and that's fact. You've got to show at least a break even if not a profit on ROI for your research to get off the ground. I mean, I don't. So. Yeah, well, you're lucky, brother. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just a different cylinder in the academy, my man. A different cylinder in the tower. Yeah, uh, go ahead and rock on for a while about whatever you've got. God knows, we've been going for a while on this, so I'll wrap up anything I feel like we've forgotten, but if you want to try and broaden it out, please have my blessing. Well, we are at about an hour, but I think we've gotten very, very far away from talking about authors and literature. Have uh, we? What? I mean, yeah, but have we... In the sense that anybody who knows Tolkien or Bradbury or Asimov or Heinlein or Legan can identify with this, I don't know that we've gotten that far off track. Perhaps not. Um, trust your lip, maybe. Trust your lip, major baby. That's all I'm saying. So the only thing that I'm I'm going to to wrap this up and I you know I mentioned earlier that I read Dracula every year but I'm not going to talk about that because I really feel that we have to give love to Mary Shelley. Oh God, yes! As a frame narrative, she is so critical. I mean, by the time you actually get into the story of Victor and his monster. You are three or four layers deep. Well, and it, not only does it, can you argue that that's spawned the entire science fiction genre? She was writing in a competition against literary heavyweights, and she smoked their fucking ass as like a, was she 16 or 18? Oh, she was, she was underage, so I'm not sure. <laughs> But I will add, and I'm not anti-feminist. She may have done it all herself. God knows Mary Wollstonecraft as a feminist writer was amazing. But she was sitting there stoned off her ass with Byron and Wordsworth and a few other influential fucking writers. So right. take take for it what value you will. Her contribution to the frame narrative is undeniable. And the idea that you could nest these stories within stories, within stories, depending on whom the nav the actual narrator navigator was, 
it is insanely groundbreaking. Well, just in the critique of medical science at the time, it's amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the idea that washing your hands could cleanse the influential demons that somehow caused these post-operative effects. Yeah. And, you know, just as somebody who not only is a fan of science fiction, but gothic literature, the goth movement, horror... The, the world owes a big debt of gratitude to Mary Shelley that I don't think is... Oh, okay. Sorry, Mary Shelley. I apologize. <laughs> I thought you were going towards Robert Smith. I, but no, not only Mary Shelley... I mean, he kind of aped her hairstyle. He did, but not... Oh, my God. <laughs> not only Shelley, but... And this is what I want to draw attention to particularly her most famous essay, Mary Wollstonecraft. Look that up and, and, and evaluate what you think about the Gothic, about Wuthering Heights, about Jane Eyre, about, Jane hell, Eyre. 90% of what Jane Austen did. Evaluate it against Mary Wollstonecraft's narrative and at least let that influence or at least form a contradiction to what she has to say about those topics pop quiz hot shot yes three favorite novels to close this out oh motherfucker um, number one's easy for me, the unbearable likeness of being, which is metaphysically speaking, a, a <laughs> spec manuscript. Um, number two, let's go if on a winter's night a traveler. Because that is maybe the single most metafictional narrative I've read. And number three. Oh, my God. Please, if you don't read anything else we ever suggest, go read William Goldstone's version, written, mind you, of The Princess Bride. I, that novel gives, in my opinion, a more beautiful and complete idea of a nested narrative with multiple narrators that you will ever encounter. Uh, his version, Gladstone, Goldstone, I think it's Goldstone. Um, read it, and don't get me wrong, read his screenplay for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Read his, his screenplay for the Stepford Wives. Yes, he wrote both of those. But in between, consider what he did with The Princess Bride. Because the novel 
seems completely and honestly metafictional. It seems to include his relationship with his wife, his ideas about his kids, his desire for a starlet who happens to be swimming in the swimming pool near him while he tries like hell to find Morgan Stern's novel for his oldest son. Please read it. That book more than any other out there influenced my idea of the past that a fiction can reach and the future into which it can not only predict but shape itself. And that may or may not have made any sense. But it's exactly how I feel about it. So go ahead, Ben. So, um, Dracula, obviously, if I bothered to read it every year, because otherwise I wouldn't bother. Moby Dick and No Country for Old Men. Oh, my God. Both of those are gorgeous. They're just past when I had considered the rest of my list. Well, that's why I framed it in the way, because, I mean, I, I had not, well, I probably read Moby Dick before I was 25, but I hadn't read No Country for Old Men, because I didn't read it until after the movie came out. But I'm not a friend of. Because <laughs> I didn't know it existed. Um, so, yeah, th- those are my three. Um, if you would like to give us your three favorite novels or comment on anything, my slander of Woodrow Wilson or the literary critique that L gave of the fact that I've that I've omitted, you know, Ray Bradbury, that I haven't touched on so many influential authors. Yeah, hell yeah, hit me up. We'll attempt. Well, no, who am I kidding? We will cover it in a future episode <laughs> once we've run out of content. If we ever run out of content. But I mean, we I, we both read enough that I think we'll probably come back to books at some other point because I'm probably going to make you do a nonfiction one um, at some point. And, and I will start that one, for those who care, with George Orwell. Homage to Catalonia, not 1984, which frankly could have and probably should have gone into this episode. I want to close the loop a little bit and say, as referencing back to Stephen King, since our next episode is going to be about blockbusters and so the visual format, I think Stephen King's work is a great ground bed for movies and television shows when you let somebody else get their hands on it and turn it into something and we will complete that thought at least from my end with the idea that it is limiting once someone else changes it to their thought Similar to the way, and I can't take credit for this idea, though it's probably, in fact, Stephen King's in on writing. 
it may or may not be useful to your interpretation to envision Jack Nicholson in the lead for one th- one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but it is a limitation, and it does by the simple nature of its uh, of of its existence. It does influence your other decisions in that category or that realm or on that novel slash movie. And I think, at least in my literary, socio-political, psychological, whatever the hell weird-ass shit I got perspective, it does change the conversation. And each of those lenses that you happen to rotate in front of your jeweler's loop, each of those lenses does have value and is worthy of discussion. And Ben, I'm done. All <laughs> you. Love you guys. Happy holidays. I'm signing off. This is L at Eclectic Heretic at Twitter. And God bless, man. Peace be with you and also with you. <laughs> and whatever the current liturgy is. But bless you, keep you, love you. Good night. And I reiterate that I don't love you. And I agree with what El got from Stephen King there because I do think that the interpretation of the written work into the visual format is limiting. But I think Stephen King needs an editor. And with that, I will say adieu until next time. Be good. Take care.